What's up, listeners and supporters of the Ain't Hard to Tell podcast? We need some help from you, and it won't take up too much of your time. As we grow, we always want to hear your feedback, so take a minute or two to fill out a short, anonymous survey. The survey link is right in the episode notes for this podcast. It's easy and takes less than five minutes. As always, we thank you for your continued support. Ain't Hard to Tell podcast episode 50. We're at the big five zero. That's what people say when they turn 50. So Ugh. I guess I'll I'll say that. I'm uh, looking Dex, forward to that. You're not looking forward to that? You got no. a ways to go, man. You got like 25 years. God willing. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Dexter Henry Brian Fonseca here for episode 50. We have a guest, a uh, special guest. Glad to have him on the podcast. Uh, good friend, great journalist, Kevin Armstrong. He's a journalist and he's also the executive producer of a new documentary that's coming out called My Perfect Life that centers on the late Aaron Hernandez. Um, we're going to talk to him about all of that. Kevin, what's up, man? Good to be here, guys. Yes, Two man. familiar faces from the New York City uh, sports scene over sports here. Scene. Yeah, yes. I had told Kevin over the summer we're going to make this happen, and then with the documentary coming out, the timing was just, just very, very ideal. Yeah, which I had no idea about you even working on it till a couple weeks ago when he told me, and I was like, "Yes, yeah, yeah." No, we, we we kept it under wraps for a little bit. We just kind of dug in, and um, you know, it's an exciting time now to kind of see the work, uh, you know, put on a big screen like that and everything. We're looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm excited. The premiere's coming up uh, on the 14th and 15th of November this month, um, so we're definitely going to check that out. We're going to get into Kevin a little bit. And we're going to get into his documentary. Um, Kevin, first, we always like to do this. We have any journalist or anybody on here we like to ask them how they got into the game so for you 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 wrote for uh quite a bit of time at the daily news uh covering a wide variety of things especially in the world of sports how'd you get into the game yeah so uh you know always a sports fan uh grew up reading uh the daily news the times rockland journal news i'm from nanuet new york uh by the Tapestry Bridge there. So, yep. uh, you know, always into sports as a kid, baseball, basketball, uh, ran track in high school, uh, got to college, uh, Boston College, and, um, you know, really loved sports and started to really get into reading and writing and uh, history as a major. And, uh, you know, I had a roommate who uh, told me, he said, you know, you should, uh, I've been working with the school paper, The Heights. Why don't you come out and, you know, just kind of, uh, he he just thought I'd like it. Yeah. And you know, it turned out that I loved it. And mm-hmm. I did started doing like women's lacrosse games, uh, you know, field hockey, anything that I could, you know, get involved with. And then, you know, took it from there, uh worked at the Boston Globe for a few years in college as like a copy boy, kind of answering the phones and you know, you'd have all kinds of Boston characters calling you, and, you know, <laughs> pretty much degenerate gamblers, like, looking for late scores. And, uh. <laughs> you, you, you know, they'd love, uh, you know, the famous game when the Yankees went up 3-0. I remember that day on. very well. I was in college. I remember that day. So the next day, I, I, answer, I, I opened the Boston Globe Sports Department. I went in. I turned the phones on. Literally, you know, this is when uh, – the, the Globe Sports Department phone number was still in the paper. You know, it's huh. kind of like, uh, you know, 03, 04 yep. era. Mm-hmm. And so people are still not, you know, 
just going to the internet to get their uh, scores. So a guy calls, uh, you know, right at like 9 a.m. when I start open the phone lines, and uh, he goes, um, "He was waiting. <laughs> he was waiting." You know. Damn. Yeah. He he was, you know, just so set for what he wanted to say, and he goes, uh, "Hey." He goes 19 to eight. Uh-huh. And I said, uh, you know, uh, you know, I know what you're saying, sir, but I, I don't understand the context. And he goes, <laughs> 19 to 8, we got you. And I said. We got you. You know, uh, not for nothing, sir, but, you know, grew up, you know, in New York, you know, lifelong Yankee fan. My dad grew up across the street from Yankee Stadium. Mm-hmm. You're not, you know, riling me. He goes, oh, hey, any Sox fans in yet? And so he, he immediately pivoted. He wanted, he wanted he wanted Shaughnessy, he wanted Bob Wright, whoever yep. he could, you know, get to kind of Sports thing. fans are so weird. And <laughs> that, you know, that was my word. Like, I loved it. You know, I, I was a sports fan enough to know, you know, everything that was going on in Boston. But, you know, got kind of a true education in the newspaper business. The Globe was doing the spotlight stuff on mm-hmm. uh, uh, the church scandal and everything. So learned a ton. Um now this was you said you said you were there because that's 04. Correct. So you were in Boston College. We were in college, I guess, about the same time. Yeah. Uh, uh, you were there from what 01 to what, o, o 02 to 06. 02 to 06. 06. So you were so a year after me. So okay. So we saw some of. So you still remember when uh, both of our teams, our colleges, were in the Big East mm-hmm. and actually used to have some battles. Jared Dudley years I was telling you about. With we Pitt. actually talked about that right um, before you got here yeah. too. No, we had, Boston College we used to have some really good games when you guys came down. Oh, absolutely. I never not got to go up. To you guys for a game at all the schools. I never got, I did a lot of coverage, but I never got to go up there. But um, yeah, sure it would have been nice. Kevin, Kevin, Kevin had asked me, um, "How's Jared Dudley doing?" Because now he's with the Nets, and then I was like, "Oh, he's starting now." <laughs> yeah, look, Jar- Jared were, Dudley. Is who the, I couldn't stand. It. I'll tell Jared Dudley this too. If he comes up here, I couldn't stand him in college. He's annoying me. Oh. He is the OG of. But that's like a respect thing, not like an, an, the yeah, short corner thing. jump shot in Al uh-huh. Skinner's flex off. Uh huh. Jared, I'll give Al Skinner a lot of credit. Not only did he, you know, bring him in when Jared was pretty much an under-the-radar recruit. He mm-hmm. was not a stud or anything. And uh, I remember, I think it was the end of Jared's freshman year. They were in the tournament, I believe, out in Milwaukee is where we were. And Al said, you know, he's 10 years in the NBA. Yes, that was – it's funny. Mm. I was – You were? did you go out to that? Did you go out to Milwaukee for that tournament? I did, yeah. I was there too. Is that right? That was um, – Pitt played Wisconsin in the second round. I Correct. remember that. And I was that's crazy. We were both there. I remember I it. It was, it was cold. Do you remember how cold it was that weekend? It was terrifyingly yes. cold. Yes. Oh, man. It was don't Oof. go back to Milwaukee cold. Yes. And I, <laughs> it, was, have you been back to Milwaukee since? Once. Oh, sorry to hear that. Uh, <laughs> Briefly. <laughs> no, nah, it was cold that weekend. That's crazy. We were both there it at was, the same time. I remember that Wisconsin yeah. Because, you know, the Wisconsin people were going crazy. Yep. And, you know, the whole town was red and everything. Devin, and Harris, was, oh, Devin Harris was on their team. Devin Harris. They beat, like, wow. UPenn, and then they lost to, uh, I forget who they – BC never made it out of the second round when I was covering them. My mm. senior year, they finally made it to the Sweet 16. That was Dudley, Sean Williams. Yeah, can also uh, remember. Know about that tenure. And, um, Yikes. Uh, BC folks could have. <laughs> yeah, potential. BC folks could have predicted a few things about uh, uh. Sean's demise there. Um, but those were fun years. Craig Smith, Lewis Hennon. Yep. It, it was a fun BC team. And, uh, you know, the, one year they started uh, either 20 or 21 and 0. Yeah, you know, literally to the seat. Like, you know, BC was killing people, and uh, Dudley. I remember clearly. I think it was they beat Villanova, and 
he had like 30 something and i can vividly remember him taking his headband out and like throwing it into the stand i forget if it was Sounds technical like or something right. like th- that he had done and everything but jared dudley is just a master of playing at his pace nobody's going to knock him off you know they're not going to speed him up they're not going to slow him down there is the Dudley pace and there is everyone else's pace. <laughs> and I actually have a funny story. They played out at the Wooden Classic at uh-huh. um, one point out in L.A. And uh, Dudley sees me in the airport. And, you know, he knew that I was like, you know, the newspaper columnist for the school paper and everything. And uh, he, my friends and I still laugh about this. He comes up to me and he goes, how long has your face been in that box? <laughs> what? And he's talking about he's talking about the headshot. The headshot that's in the in yeah, so your he, column. So right. he sees the school paper. Yeah. You know, he sees it. And, you know, it wasn't like you know, hey, I, I love your writing. I hate your writing. You know, how like, long has your I, face been? I, in I that like box. this. He goes, how long has your face been in that box? And you know, I still have you know, buddies who played with uh, Jared and everything. And uh, you know, they'll joke with me. They'll come up. You know, just randomly be like, you know, that box. <laughs> I'm sorry, we kind of derailed from your time at the Globe and all that you were able to learn there. Did, so you, I have a question, actually. Yeah, go ahead. Now that you bring that up, did you ever meet Bob Ryan? Oh yeah, I love Bob. Bob Ryan and Dan Shaughnessy, two guys who are you know so you know high up there in our industry. Yeah, uh, were great to me. Um, Bob Ryan would. Bob Ryan had a great line about Al Skinner at one point. He, you know, Al was Al is a great guy. He's not going to give you everything in terms of, you know, talking about the team or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But um, he was particularly, you know, closed, uh, tight-lipped on something. And uh, I remember walking back to the locker room at some point and uh, Bob Ryan uh, just said, he goes, uh, you know, Al saving it for the memoirs. <laughs> you know, he, he's not giving it out for free, you know, uh, after like, a St. John's you're gonna to, game you're or something. You're going to have to pay for this. <laughs> right. He goes, you know, at some point. And I always think of that, you know, when people are like just, you know, some people are just quiet by nature, and mm-hmm. that's what Al is. You know, Al's not a schmoozer or anything like that. So I think uh, things like that, and Shaughnessy as well. Um, great guy. You know, great guy. Gives Boston what it needs to hear. You know, mm. like he is not a homer by any no. extent. <laughs> he gives it to him straight. And maybe I appreciate it because I was an uh, out-of-towner who went to Boston mm-hmm. and, you know, has seen both sides of it. But, uh, you know, Dan, you know, to this day is a guy who's, you know, championed me, you know, along my career and really been there. You know, I would I would leave uh, my columns from the Heights, from the school paper on their desks. And you know, this speaks to both of them. You know, Bob would give me feedback in person, like when he'd see me in the office and Dan would, you know, like call me. You know, I'd be back on campus and he'd say, hey. You know, this was great. Mm. This would get you fired. Like, this is, you know, <laughs> where you need to improve. But it, it was feedback from guys who were actually doing it at a high level. Having, yeah. having worked with, with Dan, because when I worked for a previous company and I used to do video uh, for the Boston Globe, um, I would work with Dan and do videos for them sometimes for for their their website. God, and you um, worked everywhere. Yeah, I've done a lot. <laughs> sometimes I think about it. I've done a lot. I got to work with people like Dan. So, Dan, great guy. Um, he would give it doesn't surprise me about that story that he would give feedback like that. How mm-hmm. important was that for you as a young journalist? You know, because when you you know how that is to be able to have somebody you look up to and say, "Hey, this is where you're going right. This is where you're going wrong." How important was that for you? Mm. That's huge. I mean, you know, it was one thing to be published, you know, in your school paper, let alone you know freelancing for other places, mm-hmm. and you're you're going through the reps and you're getting your uh, bylines and whatnot. 
but for to somebody, you know, the day-to-day operations of the newspapers don't necessarily allow for, you know, much feedback, especially for the young guys. You're kind of filling yeah. a role. You're doing high school stuff. You're, you know, uh, kind of helping them put out the paper and everything. But when you have people like that who, you know, have accomplished and, you know, are authors and then you get some feedback, it's like, all right, you know, like I'm on the path mm-hmm. at that point. And you understand that, you know, you're not just writing in a vacuum. And, you know, it's nice to hear from friends and family members, people who are, you know, just kind of, you know, reading it because you're writing it. And then there's people like that who, uh, you know, really, you know, give you, you – when you get encouragement from that, you're like, all right, I don't want to let them down. Yeah. You know, yeah. you want to impress the next person and be like, oh, well, you know, Shaughnessy and Ryan and Joe Sullivan was the editor and Bob mm-hmm. Holmes was the high school editor. You know, like those were the people who opened the door for me. And, you know, Shaughnessy literally, you know, like I sent him an email with my BC stuff. He called me. Uh, because I left my f- home phone number, and he, you know, just didn't have to do that. No, he did you, it. You know, right, and yeah. you, so whenever somebody, you know, is in a similar situation, you know, I'm more than willing to, you know. Well, that's and, that's always the important thing, and I, you know, I always say that when you've had the people who've helped you, right. you have to be able to give back as well too. And I always try to give back to, to you know younger people in the industry and help them if they reach out. I always will try to answer an email, even if, if I can't help, I say I can't. But if I can. You know, you always try to. That's a good Definitely. thing. Glad to hear you. So tell us. All right. Came from, went to, the, learned a lot at the Globe. Yeah. Then you, what what'd you do next? What happened? Uh, graduated um, May of 2006. And everything uh, got real and you had to pay bills. Everything got real. <laughs> uh, then you go, uh, I went to the New York Post uh, for three months. I worked there as a, kind of like a kind of jack of all trades. Uh, you know, if they needed some reporting, uh, you know, putting together the um horse racing pages things like that uh so you know that was an education as well just coming into the new york market and um you were there what year because we kind of we i think overlapped our times there so Um, may 06 through august 06 so it was kind of like sorry it was a full-time job but um, one of my connections uh, who I had made while at the Globe was a guy, B.J. Schechter, who yep. happened to be a high-up editor at Sports Illustrated. And they were starting a high school section at that point at Sports Illustrated. And he hired me to be a fact checker slash reporter for uh, that high school section, essentially. And so I did that for three, a little over three years. But um, so to about November 2009, mm-hmm. mm. and then um, there were layoffs at SI, which in recent years have, you know, just continued to whittle away. We'll get to that. At um, a great magazine, and, you know, that was another education. Then you're, you know, working at a national magazine. Mm-hmm. You're seeing how facts are checked, how stories are, you know, uh, turned into print and everything, and, you know, just – Working with guys like John Wertheim and uh, Scott Price and Tim Layden, um, you really got to see how they put together their stories from, you know, assignment to publication. And that was also huge. Like, you know, Shaughnessy had told me, he's like, oh, you know, you're doing great with newspapers, but you really have kind of like a magazine style. And he was the first person to ever tell me that. Hmm. And I took that and then I just wanted to develop that further. You know, I wanted to report deeper, report, you know, develop a narrative arc and 
Um, Do you feel like that was always in you that you had the the taste or desire for I guess some more long form journalism than necessarily the, the maybe the short form that you'll get structurally from doing a paper or game recap that kind of thing? Was that always there in you? You just felt like that kind of brought it out? Yeah, I guess it was. You know, even with the school paper, I had done some longer things, and you know, I think that wave was starting at that point mm. where the industry was kind of going. You know, the, the, I would say that you know from when I started in '04 to now. One of the big shifts is from a lot of young journalists wanting to be the big city columnist, say a Ryan or a Lupica, Plashke kind of thing, mm-hmm. to a number of people who may have gone down that path now becoming interested in deeper feature writing and whatnot. Yes. And I think that became attractive to a lot of uh, journalists, and I was one of them. And you know that was something that I was... I did not want to be what was developing in terms of like the hot take artist and um, kind good. of a, a lower yeah. a lower form of yeah no of, disrespect to those people but good of the column writing and <laughs> you know I I just want if it's going to be my byline and my name you know I want something of sub, of substance yeah understood that. yeah and that's when I got into you know really going into the recruiting high school recruiting and college basketball and you know making sure you're in the gyms and in the neighborhoods that you need to be and just understanding the entire landscape of what's out there and I, I think that was uh, you know the perfect education you know there's a lot of uh, as we've learned with the federal trial uh, <laughs> that you know just handed down uh, three seven counts of guilty verdicts in the last few weeks here um, I saw a lot of that firsthand and, you know, I couldn't tell you exactly what the wiretaps were uh, Mm -hmm. picking up and whatnot, but you just saw the corruption and you saw sports from the grassroots level. Hmm. And I think that's something that everybody should learn along the way. Brian sounds like he wants to get into this because he knows how messy it is. And Kevin, you and I know we're both on that scene around that same time. Um, And I've told you things I've seen and heard, so not surprised at it. Yeah, Um, We just talked about that like uh, a couple episodes ago or so. We were just talking about like the messiness of the grassroots level. But now that's not only is it not a surprise, it's not even something that's publicized now because – you know, you're, you're, for example, talking about this generation of where writers came up in that way, and now it's just different. Where we've talked about this a lot, where there's not even the outlet to, hey, you start covering high school sports, you work your way up to college, then maybe you get, you know, minor league something or whatever. Like now, it's just it's way different than it was before, even ten or so years ago. And I think that's a huge shame. I mean, look, the New York Daily News when I was growing up would have like 10 pages of high school coverage on a yep. Sunday. Mm-hmm. You know, every game, yeah. you know, uh, Rice Christ the King or... I remember know, Ed, reading those. Uh, Lincoln Grady. You would read all about that and, you know, there'd be a recruiting sidebar and there'd be scores of teams that are, you know, below the radar, not even, you know, uh, but it was serving the community. You know, you were allowing mm-hmm. people to know what was going on at their alma mater or, you know, a school that there might they might be sending their kid to and everything. And so I covered, even though I was at SI.com, I covered the New York area pretty thoroughly. Uh, So, you know, I saw Kemba Walker and Rice, you know, beat uh, Derek Rose at the Garden and, uh, you know, saw those gaucho teams. And, you know, Kemba, you know, went on to be an NBA All-Star, won the title at UConn. 
Um, you know, Book Richardson, who was his Gaucho's uh, coach, you know, was one of the guys uh, charged in the federal indictment yep. and everything. So I remember uh, the day that the indictment came down, my editor called me and, you know, I was actually up at Nick's that day at their training facility. And he said, you know, this just came down. Can you help? And I said, sure. You know, I know, you know, Book Richardson. I know who these people are that are being charged. And I told them, I said, you know, give me the basketball season to report this out. But, you know, I can take you in those gyms. I can take you into the corners where some of those, you know, deals are being struck. Yeah. I can explain, you know, who the decision makers are, who the sneaker operators are and everything. And, you know, it's one of the pieces that I was proudest of at in my time at Daily News. It was called uh, Through the Looking Glass yep. and really laid out, you know, from Lamar Odom and, you know, being the number one pick, uh, number one prospect right. in 96. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's telling me his value was $200,000. And, you know, he's telling me the guys and, you know, he's going into the New York City Basketball Hall of Fame uh, induction dinner, which I attended. And, you know, Gary Charles, his old AAU coach mm -hmm. is there. And, you know, uh, Greg Shoes Vitrone, uh, his recruiter from UNLV was there. And, you know, the Everybody thinks that, you know, when these NCAA allegations uh, come down and everything, everybody separates. But, you know, here, here was, you know, Odom getting the highest mark for a New York City basketball player. And, mm -hmm. you know, the guys who were around it, you know, back then were, you know, still around back now. And uh, even though he, he went on to make his $100 million and, you know, obviously he's had issues uh, mm -hmm. off the court as well. But I, I always just think that panoramic perspective is important for readers. And I think that's what's sorely missing um, in local newspapers, let alone national publications, is the, what you'll see, those relationships that were uh, developed at the high school reporting level. You know, Frank Isola covered Stefan Marbury, Yep. you know, back in Brooklyn. And he has a great story of, I think, dropping Stefan back, you know, at his place in Coney Island and Stefan telling him, you know, like, if you see a red light, just keep on going. You know, like, don't mm -hmm. stop. You know, it's, it's a rough neighborhood and stuff like that. But those are the kind of relationships, you know, like I see Kemba now and Kemba's an NBA all-star and, you know, he'll still, have, you know, Hey Kevin, you know he'll see me. Right, or I see Lance mm -hmm. Stevenson now, and it's and we've had good relationships and things like and because we I covered him and those things matter. Or Isaiah Whitehead and things like that matter. And I think you bring up a good point. We've lost that in the in, in here in New York City. I'm sure in other cities too. So you go to Chicago, other places, but that sense of journalism where you're building these relationships with these players as they come up in whatever the sport is. And now and, and opportunities for younger journalists that we had. Sure. That now Brian doesn't necessarily have that opportunity. You do you think there's an impact on someone like Brian? Like, is there something being lost for him and not being able to get that opportunity? Yeah, you know, I just think you have to be able to make those mistakes that your any journalist is going to make at the high school level before you jump on to the NBA coverage or you know college. You know, I, I think it's the same route where guys would go down smaller towns or cities mm -hmm. and you know you'd be at a smaller newspaper and you would wake your wake work your way up to a St. Petersburg Times and then you make a jump to a Boston Globe or you know a kind of a national paper um, in the old days and that path isn't there right now and that um just that level of accountability that copy editors will build in you and that you'll have the readers you know you learn to you know, uh, 
build that trust with readers. You know, they they see your byline, they know what they're getting. You know, it's not some foofery or, you know, just some, you know, uninformed opinion. You know, right. you made the calls, you went through the effort to report and everything. Um, now, I'm not saying that, you know, guys like Brian aren't doing that, but it's just that uh, that's that path is broken at the moment Great. You know, to, to really make that jump and, you know, make that network and everything. So I think it's something that the industry really needs to reflect on. And, you know, uh, New York City has lost a lot of local reporting and, you know, the government reporting and politics, that's most important. But there's a reason that a lot of corruption can build in sports as well. Yeah. Especially mm. with all the money, you know, like people laugh and they say, oh, sports, you know, these are billion dollar industries. People yeah. are, are pouring their that, money that into some them. local reporters are not getting enough of, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you were touching upon something with the the finances and how corruption, even you see it on a political level and still how it comes into sports. The piece you wrote for the Daily News, you talking about the Through the Looking Glass piece, which was fantastic. Um what I've been interested with these indictments that have recently come down, it's been shocking to me that it, see, it appears, at least through social media, people I speak to, it doesn't seem like the public cares that much. Maybe I'm tripping <laughs> on this, but it seems like the public doesn't care that much about the fact that there's, there's corruption going on in high school basketball. Now, yeah. I, we are both or, inside, or Or they're just numb to it because of or that, who it is, right? who's maybe, involved. Maybe they're Part numb it. to it and who it's involved and it doesn't really affect them or they don't have to go in those communities. Right. Kevin, you and I worked and covered stories in these communities, um, a lot of low-end communities, a lot of uh, minority communities, mostly black communities, where a lot of these kids feel like they've got to take this money. I think you and I, if covering this, can understand why they might feel like they have to take this money. I have never been against any of these kids taking this money. Um, when we saw this stuff come out last year, whether it was DeAndre and all the stuff, there seemed to be some kind of uproar at first. And you kind of question why the FBI wants to even go down this road. Are you shocked that what I'm saying and that people don't really seem to care about this? Is this not a big deal anymore? Are people really coming to decide that maybe we should be paying these college athletes? Or what is it? Or is it people are numb to it? I get there's a lot of questions I have here. Sure. But, what, but what do you think about the public's reaction to this? There is some fatigue, you know, just from scandal after scandal, and you know, the NCAA not necessarily doing all that much. Now, you know, it got to the point at Louisville where there's strippers involved, <laughs> and you know, okay, the NCAA said we probably have to do something here. You know, we, that's interesting in itself that yeah, that was the point for them where they're like now we got to do something yeah, strippers I mean, yeah in some respects you could be like oh they're just strippers like so. this is the 20th anniversary of uh, he got game this summer wow oh. okay that makes me feel old so I love that movie and he got game you want me to tell you how old that was when that came no, out no we don't alright fine <laughs> <laughs> he got game was you know I, I talked with Spike about it I, I did a piece on the 20th anniversary and he said NCAA should have called me he goes, mm. you know, watch He Got Game. Everything's in there. Mm-hmm. That's true. The assistant coaches who, you know, Jesus is shown to. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, the corruption, the governor is paying the father to come down. Yeah. And, yeah. you know. The two white girls in the dorm. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of, uh, it's not an, uh, a direct story, but there right. clearly it's a, a 
collaborate a combination of a number of narratives that have taken yes. place over the years. Yeah. So for the NCAA to say, you know, like we're shocked is <laughs> please the know, gall of them. The <laughs> one thing I will say in terms of mm-hmm. how this case could have and should have woken people up. They were going into the same uh, federal courthouse every day that Michael Cohen is going into mm. in the Trump case mm-hmm. that Madoff went into mm-hmm. yeah. um, any number of historic cases from the mafia to you know New York corruption on Wall Street kind of stuff. Now, all three of the uh, co-defendants in that trial, the, uh, Jim Gatto, Merle Code, mm-hmm. and Christian Dawkins, committed federal offenses. There's no doubt about that. From the day that the charges were announced, if you read the wiretaps and everything and you know they covered up what they were doing, do the kids need to be getting paid? Absolutely. Yep. There needs to be more of a, an even d- uh, distribution of the wealth that the NCAA is uh, developing. Yeah. Agreed. I have no argument with that. I will say that the number of opportunists and operators who uh, benefit off of this in the sneaker industry, let alone the schools, need to be held accountable. And I agree so with that too. when people told me during the trial, they're like, oh, you know, they don't have that. I was like, look, they've got the checks. They've got, you know, Merle Code working for Adidas, sending money down to South Carolina, uh, rerouting it. He has his buddy, you know, either writing checks or going. His buddy had to go to two separate banks. Saw that. To get enough money because the money there wasn't enough in a bank, right? <laughs> like that. That's that's there. There wasn't enough in one bank. He had to, there, so, like yeah. to me, that's the if you do true detective, <laughs> this case, that's the opening scene. Is you have you have the guy getting the email or the text. This message, should be season four, True Detective. This this should be. And all he about walks this. into, you know, the uh, the bank, and they say, "Oh, sir, you know, we can give you 50. You get your next twenty thousand. You got to go down the block to the <laughs> Bank of America, or you know whatever it is. So, look, T.J. Gasnola, those guys, I've seen them. Yeah, I, I know what they are. You know, could I have told you? I've written about these guys. Uh, I've written. You know, he is the bag man. He is the guy who you know. And the thing to me, this is what just overall is wrong with the system. It's the chosen few. It's mm. Kansas, it's Duke, Nike and Adidas are going to help these schools be prominent because they need consistency. If there's 350 schools that play Division One basketball, mm-hmm. they need to know that Nike and UNC are going to be there each year yeah. in the tournament on mm. CBS and broadcast. They're not worried about, you know— the guys in the MEAC or, you know, the the Sun Conference and everything. While it's a nice narrative and those teams break through and they get their two weeks or they're whatever. They're not the ones that make them the money. They're not the chosen ones. Right. So for Bill Self, you know, the night before he's going into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. having dinner with Jim Gatto and TJ Gasnola and their fiancés or wives or whatever, just stop. You know, like, <laughs> it's a farce. If anybody believes that, you know, hey, it's just 
helping the kids get there mm-hmm. and this is the stay over this is the price of admission for playing at that level it's all a fraud in that sense yeah and you're not allowing honest coaches at the lower levels at the smaller schools actually compete in that way so there needs to be deeper investigations and you know they have 10 guys or whatever it is at this point eight guys i think um, Chuck Person and Book Richardson and everybody's going to have their day in court. But the federal government showed in the first case that they have it. All right, let's get back a little bit to your career. Um, you then eventually got to the Daily News. It was after uh, SI, correct? Uh, correct. Yep. Correct. Yeah, after SI. Um, mm, we talked. We actually, I think we talked a little bit about this on this podcast, like after all that went down. Yeah, and then obviously uh, you were there for how, how long were you at the Daily News? Uh, about uh, eight and a half years. Eight and a half eight years. And, a half. and I will preface this by saying, uh, beside Kevin, um, I've watched a lot of friends who work there, and I used to freelance there myself, mm-hmm. uh, doing video. So I tried no event. Um, a lot of people have lost jobs um, with the layoffs that happened earlier this summer. Um, you were one of them. Um, where I'd like to focus this on is. What was that like for you? Because I think we talk a lot about people's careers and they go through this and you go through this arc and you've learned this. You went from here to here to here. But then you have a point in your life where it's like, oh, you're not working here anymore. Hmm. Um, what was that like for you? Um, finding it out and saying, hey, I've got to bounce back because you have so much going on. But obviously, I think anytime you lose a job, it's not easy and you have to find a way to bounce back. What was that like for you, Kevin? Sure. So, you know, the Daily News was great to me. Uh, I started in April 2010. I covered everything from the Olympics to the NBA playoffs, Super Bowls, Final Fours, PGA Championship, American Pharaoh, you know, uh, at Belmont. Um, so got exactly what I wanted from my experience with the Daily News. Experience, um, had a tremendous relationship with my editor, uh, Terry Thompson, the one who brought me in, uh, Bill Price, Eric Barrow. Um, they let me grow. Mm-hmm. They let me uh, take on stories that a lot of other places may have, you know, uh, given to uh, more experienced people. Mm. But um, I had a wide interest in sports, you know, whether it was basketball, football, you know, they could send me to anywhere and, you know, I'll do it. Yeah. You know, as long as it's, you know, interesting and I get to file a story. And, you know, they didn't just have me on the games. You know, like I signed on uh, essentially doing Jet stuff uh, during the Rex Ryan uh, tenure, which was great also, you know, just to – See that circus and it was a circus, all right. It was success at first, and you know, <laughs> and I was, it all, all and then bad. it was not. It I was bad. there for the good stuff and was lucky enough to not have to do the daily stuff, you know, during the Tebow, with, you know, like kind of the twelve. Uh, were you at that? Were you at the Tebow press conference? I was at the initial one. Yeah. Can you explain to people? Just, I don't want people <laughs> well, to just say it. I explained to how ridiculous was that? They set it up in the uh, in the indoor uh, practice field. And the number of seats, I, I can still remember the stage I remember, and yep. the, uh, the number of chairs. You know, How to... early did you get there that day? Got there pretty early. I mean, you know, like. I was there at 8 that morning. <laughs> I mean, I remember when he flew in, you know, like he yeah. was at the private, uh, you know, airport that's right across, across essentially. Uh, Florham Park right there. Right. Yeah. Right, right in town. Christ. And, uh, you know, that's what Woody Johnson loved. It was the, uh, <sighs> the attention, the circus, the people writing about it and everything and uh you know mark sanchez uh had reached what 
two AFC title games already at yep. that point. The uh, defense brought Mark Sanchez to two AFC title games. Well, <laughs> well I, I think what I'm even saying with Kevin is, and I've covered two Super Bowls and I've done the media days at two Super Bowls. And that might be the next craziest thing I've done for one Super single Bowl. person. You're like, at a- least I, the other events are right. like multiple. Am I? Am I? Do you feel like I'm reaching on it? I don't feel like I'm reaching no. on that. Like, I mean, it I was Tebow mania. It was crazy. It was, uh, Current yeah. Mets minor leaguer, by the way. I'm surprised you hasn't mentioned this to this point. Sorry. We're not talking about that. <laughs> uh, you know, Tim carried himself well. You know, like, I don't have any problems with Tebow. It's no, the mania around It was him. the mania. It was crazy. I actually yeah. covered the his playoff game uh, out in Denver. Uh, against um, Pittsburgh. Against Pittsburgh. Yeah. Oh, Jesus I remember Christ. going to church that morning, and the priest ended the church, uh, oh, ended Lord. the mass with, uh, you know, yeah. may we have another Tebow miracle. <laughs> And I remember, you know, like, this was my first, uh, you know, you'd heard it all year, you know, that it was going on in Denver. And uh, I remember then watching, you know, the final play where he uh, connects with uh, Demarius Thomas. uh, Did you add a short pass? Put this in your story? Oh, absolutely. I led with it. Of course. Had to be the lead. I called Terry Thompson. I was like, look, I know we don't usually, you know, bring, uh, you know, church into. you know, game stories, playoff game story. I was like, but this is, I <laughs> he saw literally, this. He said, I know. saw this. What was his response when you told him that? Oh, he, you know, he was funny. I didn't tell him, you know, like that that had happened. I'm leading with Jesus. But, you know, you knew that he was going to mention Jesus at some point in the press conference. You know, he thanks Jesus. You know, he has his very, you know, yes. uh, regimented, uh, uh, you know, speeches and addresses and everything. Regimented but, um, speeches. He, you know, I remember just being like, what what a night, you know, in terms of, I remember that off season too, like Demarius Thomas, uh, you know, by the time they were ready to move on from Tebow or shift or whatever the timing was that he'd been like, yeah, Tim wasn't that good. I was like, you just had like a definitive moment of your career, you yes. know, with the guy. Uh, and you're like, nah. well, he made that like, moment yeah. though. I mean, I mean, he short did. Pass I mean, I'm not saying Demarius Thomas is wrong, but yeah. he wasn't. I, look, but, hey, yeah, yeah Tebow was, you know. <laughs> Hey, he got him that win, and I, I covered the next week. You know, they got blown out, blown out. In, uh, yeah. right? Yeah. As everybody does in New England uh, at that time of year. And uh, I remember people were wearing like uh, devil costumes, and um, it wasn't Halloween. Oh, New yeah, England! This was, uh, you know, like the, the way to combat uh, Timmy at that time. For, oh man! Just go, going going back to the Daily News real quick. Yeah, um, sorry, jumped so, off the Tebow so, thing. Just had me. I had to react yeah. to that. Tebow. So, so Tim has derailed a few. Things. Yes. Yeah. So was that. Unexpected because not too long before that, I think, was when Tronk purchased it. So I guess what was the sort of general feeling when that happened? And then when the layoffs were going down, like, how did that sort of, I guess, happen? Yeah, Tronk, if I uh, remember, I think it was September, I guess, 17. Yeah. uh, They purchased the newspaper. Um, Was it really for a dollar, like, reported? Yes and no. You know, it's a number of, they, they assume, a bunch of. To my understanding, a bunch of debt and uh, you know pensions and stuff like that. You know, there it's clearly a bigger number that they're investing, but you know whatever the the official statement by might be a, a dollar technically in, in those terms. Um, they bought the paper in September. Um, not too much changed immediately. We had already gone through uh, severe layoffs. Um, yeah, I guess that would have been. Was that two years before? 2015, yeah. I want to say. Mm-hmm. And around this that It was time 2015 because I remember um, when we – because we had met at St. Francis, and you had told me that after, like this was during my senior year, 
Correct. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was doing a story on uh, the gyms of Brooklyn and the uh, courts all over the place and everything. And Kelsey Minato from Army. Yep. I remember that. Absolutely. <laughs> Who was uh, one of my favorite players. stories. Yeah. Uh, you know, scored over 50 in a game. Of yep. West Point cadet. Uh, still an inspiration for a lot of people. You know, yeah. She talked about breaking, uh, you know, the glass uh, ceiling and whatnot. She, she really um, went a lot farther than anybody expected. Did, yeah. Yeah. Um, but those were the types of stories that I was allowed to do, and you know, profiles, and you know, I pretty much spent a season going up to West Point, you know, game after game, and just kind of taking in what she was doing. You know, even covered her on the road. Uh, Aaron Hernandez's trial was going on in uh, Massachusetts, and I was up there for like weeks at a time, and uh, West Point was playing Holy Cross, so I just drove like to Worcester mm-hmm. uh, okay. one night, and you know, saw her score another like you know thirty something, and. The opposing coach is like throwing the whole playbook at her, and she's still, you know, uh, getting buckets like she that. She was a beast. Um, she was. <laughs> but we had so fifteen. Uh, the Daily News had a bunch of cutbacks: Wayne Coffey, Terry Thompson, Philip Bondi, um, just true legends and professionals in terms of what they contributed to the New York Daily <clears throat> News. And when that happened, you know, a lot of people were you know, uh, took notice, uh, both inside and outside the newsroom. And this was when, more or less? That was September or October. This is still, okay, this is still. Yep. So that was the first wave. Oh, and, God. you know, in a way, I benefited from the fact that people who would have been like Wayne and uh, other writers who may have been assigned things that, you know, I was working on, um, you know, I got a lot more opportunities to continue to grow and, um, you know, Wayne, which was a, a bittersweet situation, you know, like Wayne is somebody who read my work yeah. and would give me feedback, you know, much like Shaughnessy at the Globe. And Terry Thompson was uh, somebody who literally, you know, uh, I used to joke, it was like uh, she, she had a slingshot and she would just put me in it and something would happen, you know, whether it was a murder or a plane crash or, you know, high profile uh, national news. And she would trust me and say, you know, we think Kevin will come back with the story and, you know, I'd bring back 2,000, 4,000 word stories for her and everything. And it was her trust uh, that really allowed me to flourish at the Daily News. But then July came and uh, yeah. that, that was, uh, you know, I was part of the thing that, you know, you don't take it personally because you're le- walking out the door with like literally 40 to 50 uh, yeah. co-workers. And I was in the office on the day that it happened they came in and, you know, they just announced it. And uh, it's one of those situations where you're like, okay, all right. You know, you know what your situation is with the news. And now it's a matter of, you know, uh, finding something else and whether it's freelance or full time. And I just went to work right away. You know, even before I left the building, you know, I was getting phone calls from people who I know and, you know, telling me I need to contact this person or that person. And, um, yeah, I'd been through a layoff with Sports Illustrated before and had started freelancing with the New York Times immediately after. So, you know, I just approached it the same way. You know, I didn't care, you know, how long the severance was or, you know, whatever our situation was uh, mm-hmm. with the news. I just went to work for, you know, a number of outlets. And, you know, the Los Angeles Times, I did something for them. Uh, the federal trial with the basketball corruption. I did some work with the Washington Post. Saw and, that. Yeah. You know, I've been doing uh, the New York Times. Uh, Metro. I've done a few stuff. things for them. Mm-hmm. Metro uh, with the New York City Marathon and Adrian Peterson running all over the Giants last week. Saw and that one. Yeah. So, uh, 
you know, what I've always taken pride in is having a variety of interests and, uh, you know, curiosity that can take me into a lot of corners. And I think that's something that can benefit me, you know, in this landscape. Obviously, it's a fragmented landscape in terms of a lot of changes going on in a lot of different places. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think it's it's about the work that you've done Mm -hmm. and, you know, what you can present to people, uh, you know, and I think it's, you know, one of those experiences that you don't want to go through. Yeah. But when it comes, you better be ready and you better embrace it. Backpack Broadcasting continues to bring you the best original sports content. But now you can get more of the content you love. For as little as $3 a month, you can get access to bonus content, including behind-the-scenes footage and interviews from the Sports Walk, Sideline Stories, or the Ain't Hard to Tell podcast. All this exclusive content comes via Patreon. There are tiered levels of patronage, and each Backpack Broadcasting patron receives exclusive perks. Your support helps Backpack Broadcasting create more of the original content that you love. Visit Backpack Broadcasting's Patreon page and become patreon today a hard to tell podcast episode 50 kevin armstrong great journalist and the executive producer of my perfect life documentary on the late aaron hernandez we will touch on that in a minute but as we always do We've got to pick a number of an athlete for this episode. Uh, Kevin understands how this works. Yeah, we explained uh, it. Brian, as always, has done the research yeah. uh, behind the numbers of everyone, even the most obscure numbers. And Kevin actually reminded us of somebody who should have been on the list that was not on the list. Uh, Brian, you can take it away with that. Uh, all right, fine. So for number 50, by the way, uh, speaking of obscure names, one of the episodes, because the na- the numbers were terrible, we went with Kwame Brown. I'm just letting you know how obscure this could be. Uh, yeah. And I was pushing for Kwame Brown because he wore like 34, 36, 37, 38, like all those numbers. So I was like, yo. I think that's be a rule. If you've worn more than like four numbers, you can't even like be a part of it. But the, the number was so bad, whatever it was. So we were just like, whatever. Yeah. So it is what it that's is. That's how low we got. So uh, 48, we went with Tory Hunter and 49, Tim Wakefield. So let's see how we follow this up. Yeah. <laughs> I think I know where I'm going, but okay. 50. So there's a lot. We've got Mike Singletary. Solid. AJ, solid. AJ Hawk. Remember him? Yes. Less solid. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Vrabel. Less. Not Less not solid. thrilled for me, not but single Jets fan. But oh. yeah. Okay. Justin Houston. Who? From the Chiefs. Oh, Pass rusher. Yeah. Oh, okay. He's really good, but we're not oh, picking okay. him, I guess. Jamie Moyer. Yeah. Sid Fernandez. Okay. Mookie Sid. Betts. I just want to see if you're. I like Mookie. Better. I just want to see if you're looking out for for Mookie here. Uh, look out for my people. <laughs> nah, okay. You did that with Tori Hunter, <laughs> but I actually like Tori Hunter. I'm not like a fan of Mookie. You're Betts. not a fan of Mookie. I Betts. like Mookie Betts, but not in the Tori Hunter level of fandom. You would love him if he was with the Mets. I would. True. <laughs> Greg Anthony. Nope. Tyler Hansborough. Nope. Eddie House. I liked Eddie House. I used to play basketball with high socks and a headband like him. Uh, Are you sure people have to stick together? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Short people with jump shots. Uh, so no, no Eddie House. Corey Maggette. Oh, man, that man can get to the line. Covered him a big three this past summer. That's right. <laughs> Emeka Okafor. Wow. I told you this was a long list. Bryant Reeves is the one that I forgot. That Kevin brought up. Yeah. We know Bryant. 
Like, yeah. <laughs> dug up a photo of him, and I forgot what he looked like, and yeah. Big, big country did damage. Was no surprise that he was from Arkansas when I saw him. No surprise. Um, No offense. Zach Randolph. Zebo. That's it? That's it? No love for Zach Randolph? I, All right, Zach, I like Zach Randolph. Zebo had a nice run. Ralph Sampson. We're almost done. Uh, David Robinson, which is probably the favorite the here. The Admiral. And my pick, not really my pick. <laughs> Michael Sweetney. <laughs> I think it's the Admiral in a landscape. Dexter I hates me. <laughs> yeah, I do. Kevin, you, uh, as a writer... Um, now I've gotten into uh, the documentary world. Mm-hmm. But you were covering a lot of this person yes, that we should, we're about to mention. We should say that. Kevin had a lot of uh, covered a lot of the Aaron Hernandez trial. Yeah. Um, so you, you were well-versed in that, informed on that and everything. Um, but you're now involved in a documentary. You have an executive producer title. Right. Uh, Along with who are your co-producers again? Sure. Yes. Dan, Dan Wetzel, Dan uh, Wetzel, national columnist for Yahoo. Yes. Great guy. Great journalist. Uh, Gino McDermott is the director of the film. Uh, he works with uh, Blackfin uh, Productions. Mm-hmm. Is his. He's also CEO of that company. Uh, Christina Roberts is another. Um, Christina Douglas, sorry. Uh, and um, Adam Talade is the editor, also a producer, and uh, Sean Declare is another talented. Uh, documentarian uh, both with the camera and producing uh, you know really helped us uh, everybody had their part mm-hmm. you know kind of in getting this together so, so now you said mm-hmm. yeah oh, no, my bad my bad <laughs> now oh. you said you said before about how you guys kept this under wraps for a while so i guess when did this process sort of start putting this together because obviously you know you and some of the other people have an extensive background in covering this bizarre Aaron Hernandez situation. Sure. And I find this fascinating that there's a documentary coming out on it. I think we both do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there have been a ton of twists along the way, and there still continue to be, you know, revelations and whatnot. It's that fresh. And um, so just speaking personally, you know, I, I from the day he was a suspect in uh, June of 2013, Oof. I was uh, – it was one of those stories, like I told you, with Terry Thompson. You know, I called her. I said, you know, there's an NFL player accused of murder up in uh, – or being suspected of murder up in Massachusetts. That was already uh, five years know, ago? Yeah. I think that's something that, you know, we would want to explore. And she said, go. You know, uh, <laughs> so I drove up. And I spent uh, I spent 10 days, you know, going around uh, the Dorchester neighborhood where Odin Lloyd, uh, the victim, mm-hmm. uh, was from. Uh Foxborough, obviously, where uh, the Patriots play, and Hernandez was in his third year, had just finished his third season uh, with the Patriots, um, had already played in a Super Bowl, caught a touchdown pass from Tom Brady against the Giants, which they lost that game. But, you know, Hernandez and Gronk, they were known as the uh, the Boston TE party, uh, mm. you know, just a legendary combination that would appear to be, you know, just picking up uh, momentum as uh, Brady was continuing, uh, you know, the passing attack at that point. Um, but uh, Odin Lloyd's body was found in a um, industri- undeveloped uh, industrial park about less than a mile from Hernandez's uh, McMansion in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. Hernandez had a young daughter. He had a fiancé living with him, uh, had signed a five-year, $40 million contract, 
literally all he had to do in the world was uh, not kill somebody or commit a crime that would send him away for any amount of time. You know, he he would be living a pretty nice life. He was 23 at the time. Yep. Jesus Christ. And, you know, so it had a lot of elements there that, you know, needed to be explained. And I had become, become kind of a person who was camped out at the intersection of sports and crime in terms of my reporting, you know, from Plaxico Burris's prison release up in uh, upstate New York. Uh, there had been a number of other uh, stories, um, you know, kind of tragedies that I had, you know, followed a lot of the threads on and whatnot. And this is one that, you know, I spent 10 days up there at first. Uh, you know, he, he was, Odin Lloyd was killed on June 17th. Mm -hmm. Aaron was eventually arrested on, I believe, June 26th. And from there, you know, Odin Lloyd was dating the sister of Aaron Hernandez's fiance. Yeah. So, you know, there was a closeness. There was no denying that Aaron Hernandez was linked to Odin Lloyd. It wasn't like there was just somebody found with uh, uh, rental car keys in his pocket that, right. you know, Hernandez was the person who rented the car. And so, you know, the links were undeniable. And the police, you know, were pretty tight-lipped at first. You know, there wasn't too much revealed, but I made my way around to a lot of the neighborhoods and pretty much everybody who was involved. You know, the uh, CNN trucks and all those people were parked outside of Hernandez's uh, uh, house. And, you know, you see the footage of Hernandez being walked out after all that time. You know, I remember standing outside the house just in case there were more. You know, one day the cops came and they did uh, the executed search warrant. Mm -hmm. And it was a uh, full, you know, fleet of cars came in and you have the TV trucks kind of choking the street and the cops come in and they go about their business. They're taking out the uh, brown evidence bags and everything. And I can vividly remember like the neighborhood kids playing like patty cake as, Hmm. you know, this scene is playing out. Hmm. And, it's just one of those bizarre, you know, American stories of like, you know, this high class neighborhood where, you know, uh, Teddy Bruschi lived right around the corner from Hernandez. And, you know, this is where you go when you make it. You know, this is where, you know, nothing's supposed to follow you in kind of thing. Mm. And Hernandez was clearly associating with a lot of um, doing a lot of drugs, a lot of marijuana, a lot of, um, you know, hanging out with guys who were dealing and, you know, into guns and some higher end crime stuff. Were people in the neighborhood aware of the, aware of this, at least from your going around it? and doing I don't think so. Uh, not yeah. at that time, yeah. you know. Uh, and again, you know, it's, you know, you're a well-to-do neighborhood. Everybody's got a nice house. They've got. Everybody's kind of you know, insulated from everybody else. Exactly. Right? You've mm-hmm. got your well-manicured lawns. You know, you're not living on top of each other. So even if people are coming in and out of Hernandez, you know, I don't think he was running around with guns or, you know, like right. doing things, you know, on his front lawn. Um, <laughs> but a few things, you know, with the crime, when he committed the crime with Odin Lloyd are, you know, the police were able to, uh, piece together all the surveillance tapes, you know, from the block where Hernandez picked up Odin Lloyd, you know, they have the car and then they have, you know, different stops. They've got Hernandez at a a gas station and he's, you know, even dancing at one point, Um, you know, just kind of 
if, if, whether he's high or drunk or just, you know, feeling good that night. And, you know, within minutes, he's pumping six bullets into Odin Lloyd and leaving him in an industrial park. And, you know, what's going on with the mind? What's going on with, you know, just um, his life at that point that leads him to do something like that? And that's something that we wanted to explore, you know, with, you know, he ostensibly had everything and, you know, is living that American dream. He's from Connecticut. He's doing well with the Patriots, kind of a local boy, you know, a few hours away. But, you know, it's not like he's a, you know, a foreign import or anything like that. And in some ways, you know, the proximity to home probably cost him a lot. You know, Mm. there was some contacts back there that, you know, clearly... Maybe if he had been, uh, you know, a farther distance from, he wouldn't have been associating with. But um, it, it was just one of those things that I kept on going up there. You know, I did the first 10 days and then I did, you know, a number of hearings and, you know, just the evolving case and everything. And it took two years before the first trial, which lasted 10 weeks. And, you know, there was everything from a bomb threat at the courthouse to, uh, you know, the... Uh, the prosecutors like asking the judge because they had a bad prior relationship or situation to, you know, like literally filed for the judge to be taken off the case and everything. So it just kept on being all the, you know, you go when the trial came around, you'd walk into the courtroom and you'd have one sister on one side and the other sister on the other. Mm. And Shayana, the mm. fiance is reading fashion magazines, you know, like in the breaks and everything. And, you know, to be there and to just absorb everything, um, you know, was one of those experiences that, you know, I think a lot of people don't have the opportunity to see a case fully evolve. Mm-hmm. But the Daily News kept on sending me back up there and, you know, was able to, uh, you know, have relationships and uh, speak with a lot of the people involved. And, um, you know, that was – we felt we were covering a national story that – a lot of people had an interest in and um, eventually Blackfin, the production company, um, is who, you know, Dan Wetzel and I, uh, Dan had covered the trials uh, for um, Yahoo and uh, we got in a room um, and, you know, we thought there was a, a full story to be told uh in documentary format. And, mm. and so in terms of that, because you're going from, obviously, you're covering both of you guys, you and Dan, uh, yeah. covering every day, writing it, writing it, and now Blackfin approaches you. You guys have a you guys have a meeting and this comes about. Um, how did they talk to you about how involved you would be in this? Like, hey, are we just going to sit you down and do interviews where you can, like, sort of retell, recap stuff about what happened during certain things? You're going to be hands-on because you have executive producer credit, so I'm assuming you were hands-on in terms of the editing. This is how we're going to lay this out and do all this stuff. Um, was that told to you up front? Like, hey, you're going to be this involved in this project? Yeah. You know, we talked about a few different, you know, uh, paths that could be taken. And, you know, the way I see it just 2020 uh, hindsight is, you know, we were the institutional knowledge. You know, like mm, Dan right. and I had covered the case and, you know, had interacted with a lot of these people. Um, you know, Gino and uh, Sean and Adam, you know, had the cameras and, you know, had the uh, – the institutional knowledge in terms of how to uh, make TV yeah. and, you know, uh, do that documentary length and everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a learning process for both sides, for, you know, both the journalist and the film crew and everything. But I, I think that the end product really represents um, a journalistic endeavor uh, played out, you know, on video. And, 
you know, for the opportunity, we've been accepted into uh, the Doc NYC F- Film Festival. Um, you know, that gives us a mark of credibility and uh, a sign that, you know, it was a tight crew that we kept, you know, kind of 10 to 15 people. And uh, for now, to for the idea of it playing out on a big screen and, to you know, in a West Village, you know, art house like that is, uh, you know, pretty Huge. incredible for us. Were, uh, just a quick question, Brian. Were there any, um, in terms of the documentary, so people see it, the, and this also premieres um, on the 14th, um, you, you can see it for people if you're in the New York area. Um, it's at the Doc NYC Fest, as you mentioned, uh, November 14th at the IFC Center. And there's also a second show, November 15th at the Sinopolis, uh Chelsea. So you can both people can see it there. At nine and at nine at night and, and then at 10 at 10, night. 10 at night, the, yeah. the next day. At 9.15 yeah. and 10.15. Um, in terms of voices in the story, obviously you're going to have a prominent voice. Dan will as well, too, being the journalist. Right. Um, was it just sound and stuff used from the courtroom? Are any of the, the people of the Hernandez family, did you get any of those people in there, uh, lawyers, prosecutors? Like, Are there other voices in this, this piece that's kind of diverse to get the story whole? Definitely. So, yeah, uh, Dan and I are both uh, producers and on camera. Um, we have a family member who I think is a strong voice, okay. um, you know, kind mm-hmm. of shedding light on Aaron as a you know family member and somebody who, uh, you know, had a strong life, you know, long before anybody ever knew, you know, Aaron Hernandez, the New England Patriot or Florida Gator and whatnot. So I I would say there's um, what was most interesting for me was characters who I had spoken to along the way and had either been quiet voices in stories that I had done or had been actually quoted and, you know, people who were kind of, you know, part of a bigger piece or whatnot, um, to see them tell their story and speak their truths about Odin Lloyd and or Aaron um, was a pretty, you know, uh, transitional moment for me. You know, like I'd always been a print guy, you know, I don't do a ton of TV. I don't, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, somebody who is, you know, appearing, you know, on a number of shows or anything. But that to me was the perfect intersection of journalism and art and Mm. being able to, um, you know, dig deep and find archival footage of a young Aaron that, you know, I I might know exists, but it was a matter of bringing that to life. And, you know, having high school footage of him Mm. and college footage and also, you know, having the courtroom stuff. So, you know, we taped the whole... um, second trial and stuff mm-hmm. like that so we had you know some of that stuff that may have been more difficult to obtain if from... we weren't on the scene kind of thing correct me if i'm wrong didn't he have like that you were talking about earlier that sort of his past right didn't he have that in florida also wasn't that yeah there was some drug usage and you know when he was going through the nfl draft process in because i remember there was a picture that was controversial where he had the gun Correct. This is he's when wearing he was a, a red student. shirt. And yeah, the bag yeah, red yeah, shirt, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. a block or whatever it is, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he Gainesville is really where, you know, you can start pulling some of the threads and seeing the formation of, you know, like maybe this guy's getting into a little more than the average college kid mm. exploring, mm. you know, outside the bounds kind of thing of, you know, where society or family or, you know, what's acceptable and whatnot. And I think that, 
you know, through our reporting and speaking to people, we have a pretty good rep- representation of just, you know, what may have added up inside him to eventually be a convicted killer and serving a life sentence. And again, the evolution of just the case, you know, it was at first it was like, all right, you know, it's a, a murder in the NFL. And it's murder at a good address in the sense Mm -hmm. that, you know, the Mm -hmm. old tabloid uh, theme and everything that goes back to Breslin and, you know, Shap and people like that. But then it's also, okay, he goes through the first trial. He's convicted. You know, a lot of people may have lost interest. Yeah. You know, there was still a second trial. The double murder trial. Which was actually for a homicide that was committed before Owen Lloyd. Yep. And so then it's like, you know, people would ask me, they say, well, why, why do you need to cover it beyond the first? He's already going. He's never coming out. You know, he lost his first trial. And there was a uh, – the prosecutor for the Boston homicide for the um, the second trial had brought up uh, one of the scenes where Hernandez had allegedly – Uh, committed the killing and he was at a club these guys either spilled his drink or bumped into him Mm -hmm. there was some kind of dispute yeah and you know hernandez is upset he's following those guys that night he sees them leave he says to his buddy alexander bradley who was a drug dealer and you know serving his own prison sentence and everything he says you know we need to go uh, find those guys and the prosecutor mentioned that Allegedly, Hernandez reached out with the gun, and it was a limited clip, whatever it was, a revolver. It was a revolver, so there were six or eight, however many bullets. Mm-hmm. And after it was completely emptied, so say, you know, the clip, the the revolver is empty at this point. He could still hear clicking. He still heard a clicking. Going beyond. So that's somebody who wanted Mm. didn't just want to kill, but wanted to kill even more than he could. Could. Mm. And you're saying something like that speaks a lot to the mental state that Aaron Hernandez might have had at the time. And I heard that and Mm -hmm. I was like, of all the things that had happened so far, you know, like the Odin Lloyd killing and you know, that was very detailed. The prosecutor prosecutors laid that out and everything. And I I remember telling my editor, I was like, you know, you gotta understand like what they're saying. You know, with this guy, you know, like, yeah, he emptied the revolver and was still going was, for more. Yeah. And this he played a full NFL season mm-hmm. after that. After this. After, yeah. Yeah. after that, if that alleged act. Right. And he was eventually acquitted in the second trial. Yep. And technically, he in the eyes of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, he dies an innocent man because he did not have. And I find that fascinating. And Which, some people, yeah. it's very controversial. And I've, obviously you, you guys touch upon this in this piece, right? Because yeah. once he was acquitted uh, for the double murder, even though he was convicted for the murder of Odin Lloyd because he committed suicide in jail, that he's an innocent man. And that he takes did off. not have the opportunity to go through the appeal process. process right. So. How did that affect you guys also? Because like, you're already filming. You're already, you know. Sure. Undergoing no, this project, and then he commits suicide in April of last year. No doubt. And, you know, there was a lot of, like, ebbs and flows in public interest. And I don't think that public interest is necessarily what you gauge journalism by. You know, Agreed. again, it's 
you know, the click culture and everything. And, oh, you know, like, well, this happened, but let's move on to the next one. Mm -hmm. You know, I had invested so much time as is that, you know, I just wanted to continue following the threads and, um, you know, never could have imagined that, you know, we'd be, you know, in a documentary form at the beginning. I, I do think at times, and there are photographs and things that, you know, represent the five years that I, you know, covered it uh, from suspect to suicide. Um, but there are even, you know, more things that, you know, if I had that documentary mindset or if I was, you know, recording things along the way, you know, there, there could have been even more. But, you know, you have that experience and you have that uh, exposure to, you know, like this is what makes a documentary. And, you know, we were able to find, you know, enough video and speak to enough people that really brings that to life. But, um, you know, the suicide happens and then it's, you know, what what else could be? And then it's, oh, we're going to donate his brain to uh, BU to. So that's that's where I wanted to go and link mm. that to what you said before that the prosecutor said with him still holding the gun and clicking and wanting to dump more bullets past the bullets that are already gone. All right, so now you get to the point where you're talking about. His brain gets donated to BU, right? BU, right. Boston University, and they find out that they, or the doctors discover and say that he had the highest stage of CTE. And obviously there's all this talk that's been around NFL players and CTE, um, and doctors have really been looking at the brains of people like this. When you talk to other people around around it, we actually have a doctor sitting here with us, uh, my friend Howard's here for this this recording. When you talk to people, medical professionals, about this, because some people are still not believing the CTE can actually impact people's brains, how much were they saying, you know, this had an impact on these violent acts that we saw from this man and what even tragically his suicide of him ending his life? Like, are they concluding that all of this had an impact on the man that we see Aaron Hernandez to be or will be shown in your documentary. Sure. So, you know, to reiterate, he lived till 27. Right. He was 23 when he stopped playing in the NFL. And, you know, he commits suicide. That announcement comes within a day or so that first week, Jose Baez, his defense attorney for the second trial, who was not his attorney for the uh, first trial, uh, announces that they're donating the brain to BU. And, you know, I just saw that as it's just a win-win situation as a lawyer. You know, you donate the brain, and mm. if it comes back positive, then CTE, you mm -hmm. know, is what killed Aaron Hernandez or drove him to kill. If it comes back negative, at least you donated the brain. And, you know, it, it, went, way it, it went to good. Yeah, right, right, know, right. Optics-wise... Right. Win-win. Win-win. You know, then it comes out that he had CTE, and he was the youngest, you know, the worst case for someone his age, and, you know, you take that into account. And then it's kind of worst-case scenario for the NFL. You know, you had a CTE problem, and you had an Aaron Hernandez problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Slash NFL crime problem. Mm-hmm. And now... Doctors are, you know, linking him to or diagnosing him with CTE uh, posthumously. And you already know that he was convicted of killing someone. So then you've got a lot of parents and people worried about head trauma as is, and re repeated blows to the head. And now you kind of morph that 
those mm. two, you know, that, that, that that's a huge problem in terms of perception for the NFL. So Aaron Hernandez, you know, goes down now as a CTE case. And, you know, then you start talking to people from his past, you know, like how many concussions did he have? And, you know, he had X amount of concussions diagnosed, say, you know, in the NFL or with the University of Florida. And, you know, just when you think that you've reached the end of the line, you know, on reporting, there's just more. And you talk <laughs> to people from the childhood and, you know, people who have, uh, you know, literally suited up against him and Pop Warner and guys who, you know, played against him. And, you know, so we have strong voices just kind of shedding light on, you know, his path as a football player. And you also um, just juxtapose that with Odin Lloyd, one of the victims, who was playing semi-professional football, football. which essentially means that you pay to <laughs> shoot up. You know, like, you're not getting paid yeah, right? Right. playing for the Boston Bandits. You know, there's no right. big – there's certainly no five-year, $40 million check. Right. And Odin Lloyd's a big boy. You know, he, he could, you know, hit them, linebacker, you know, whatever position. And, you know, we talked to some of his teammates, and they talked about, you know, that life that, you know – that street life versus that football life. And, you know, Hernandez was trying to clearly double, you know, in uh, or live in both worlds, live in both say? worlds. Yeah. And, you know, some of the like Lloyd's friends are saying you can't do that. And if you're an actual like on the street level, you recognize that you know, Hernandez was, you know, a chameleon to mm-hmm. a lot of people. You know, I talked to, uh, uh, Nelson, the uh, the former Jet receiver, uh, David Nelson, David Nelson. Yeah, who yeah. played with him at Florida. Yeah. You know, he, he dubbed him a chameleon in terms of just how he could go, kind of, you know, be with Robert Kraft one day and then, you know, picking up Odin Lloyd down on Faison Street in Dorchester the next. Hmm. And hmm. it was that kind of, you know, double life and concealing things that clearly Hernandez was trying to pull off. Yeah. And he just got in too deep on multiple levels, and very quickly. That's the that's the other thing because right. you talk about how he three was years in the NFL, three years in the NFL, and just, and a Super Bowl, all these things, won a national championship with Tebow well, at and Florida. Percy Harvin, yep. who was very problematic. Urban Meyer, as well. Bill Belichick, and everything you know. everything just changed. When you look at this project, what what do you, if somebody you know comes to see us, comes to the premiere, we're going to do that. What do you hope they take away from this? You know, because it's a lot of things that sometimes is when I look at documentaries, the ones that are really good, are the ones that kind of take people into a place or a thing about people that they maybe didn't get to know. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what you hope is is sort of like what's the goal when you look? You've obviously seen this runs eighty seven minutes, yeah, um, and you're covering new ground on this story that other people, while they've covered it, probably haven't visited it. where you've gotten to. And that's another thing, Kevin, right? Because a lot of people don't know things post. The suicide and the end of the double murder trial, yeah. and now there's there's still more to the story that I think a lot of people still have been wanting to know, which is I think why it's so intriguing. But again, what do you hope people? Hey, you come see this. You watch this documentary. What do you want them to take away from this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I want to take you to Faison Street. I want to take you to Bristol, Connecticut. I mm-hmm. want you to see Lake Avenue where Hernandez, you know, uh, grew up, and uh, uh, Greystone Avenue where you know his family life and. I want you to be exposed to kind of a, a panoramic view of what happened here. Mm-hmm. Aaron Hernandez was on this world, on this earth for 27 years. 
He had a tattoo that said "My Perfect World." Um, he had a godson mm. named Jano. I was wondering where the title came from. Actually, uh, so, so. Y- you can see Jano is tattooed there, right on uh, his pec. Yeah, and um, you know he was to a lot of people. He, his perfect world was everything that he had. Yeah, and hmm. you keep on digging, and you find the roots of you know what led to his downfall. And, you know, he, he lost his father when he was just between leaving Connecticut, where he was a All-American, and going down to Florida. And, you know, he really checked a lot of the boxes in terms of what people would hold up as uh, major accomplishments. But there were a number of red flags along the way that either people just ignored or decided not to uh, impose discipline on him or keep him on a straighter path. Mm. And in the end, I think that's what uh, really cost him a lot. And it cost him his life, and let alone uh, a few families. Uh. I, we, I, we had a great time. Love talking to you about this, especially yeah. the documentary. We're so excited to see it um, and everything here about your career. I think there's a lot that people can take from this. We have to have you back on because I would love to talk to you about the whole clickbait culture. There's a whole other thing we talk about, the clickbait <laughs> culture and journalism. We and talk about that fake a lot. news and the challenging time that it is for journalists um, yeah. right now and to do glad, the right thing. And glad to know that you've obviously rebounded from the daily yes, news. Yes, we're very happy for, we're very happy for you. I sent that. you a text around that time to make sure, you know, Absolutely. stuff was all no, good. So yes. Always appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, so no, thank you for joining us, man. We really we really appreciate you having me on. You come back? Absolutely. When right. Tim Hardaway is a NBA All Star. <laughs> that is for people who don't know, that is that is a little shot at our camera guy Greg who thinks <laughs> Tim Hardaway will be an NBA All Star. But I'm going to agree with Kevin Armstrong in the fact that I think Tim Hardaway can be an all star, probably in the G League. I hope that he's an all star though, because he's on my fantasy team. <laughs> no, whatever. I'm gonna stick with you on that prediction. Kevin, once again, congratulations on the documentary. Mm-hmm. We look forward. You can see the documentary. Documentary. The name of it is My Perfect World. It's a documentary on the late Aaron Hernandez, uh, Kevin and Dan Wetzel. It's co-produced by Blackfin. Pr- will premiere uh, at the DOC NYC Fest on November 14th at the IFC Center. Second show for that premiere will be November 15th at Sinopolis Chelsea. So you can catch it there. Um, we're excited about it. You heard a lot from Kevin. Yeah. Uh, follow him. Does great writing for a bunch of outlets. And he says we'll be back on the A-Hard Cell Podcast. So we're happy about that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again, Kevin. All right. So for Kevin Armstrong and Brian Fonseca and the people who've been joining us here in studio, including Greg, who thinks that Tim Hardy will make an Mm all-star team. That's it for episode 50 of the A-Hard Cell Podcast. Until next time, guys. Peace. (laughs) 